Welcome to the Green Docs, delivering everything your OB isn't telling you, but should be. Let's start with some headlines. Nate? Yeah, for example, did you know that moms may carry their babies longer than expected? New research shows that fetal cells in mom's bloodstream takes root in her lungs, brain, and of course her heart, perhaps for her entire lifetime. And in big news that didn't make the news, on January 1st, the California legislature delivered triplets, three new business-related climate laws that will greatly reduce corporate greenwashing and probably force thousands of U.S. companies to clean up their environmental act. And Taylor Swift told us about champagne problems, but not like this. An AI model predicts that the beloved French grapes could be nearly extinct by 2050. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Representative Mike Levin, who's a Democrat serving in his third term in the U.S. House of Representatives here in Southern California about the progress being made on environmental issues that threaten you and your family's health right now. Also, what it's like to serve in Congress given its current state and his favorite rock and roll bands. Stick around to the end of the episode where we're going to feature a surprise mixologist from Mike Levin's district and a mocktail for the new year called The New Leaf. I'm Bruce Picard. I'm a Southern California OBGYN. I'm on the editorial board of the Journal of Climate Change and Health, and I'm a fellow at EcoAmerica in Washington, D.C. And I'm Nate DiNicola, a environmental health expert for our national and international OBGYN societies, as well as a private practice physician and chief medical officer. All right, Bruce, welcome to the new year. How are your resolutions going? Very well, actually. I'm getting more protein into my diet. I have a new favorite Instagram egg dish, the cottage cheese eggs that I saw. That Actually, mixing a half a cup of cottage cheese and a couple of eggs, scrambling that up and putting it on top of a, a baguette or a piece of toast, 26 grams of protein, and it's delicious. <laughs> I'm also back to running. I haven't run for a few years, and it's awesome. Gets me outside, and it's really good to improve the mitochondria in my muscle cells which not only generate energy, but also burn fat. And I have a question for you, Nate. Do you know what else improves mitochondrial number and function? I'll give you a hint. It's something pleasant. I think having a lady in your life, <laughs> eating healthier, running more on the beach, that got the mitochondria going. Apparently having a massage works to beef up your mitochondria. So it's all good. Yeah, I stand by my answer. I think this is all, all, part, <laughs> all part of the same thing. Awesome. What's been going on with you? Not so much a dry January. We've had actually a very uh, libaceous New Year's Eve and entry into the new year. We were in Las Vegas, Kendall and I, for a really short trip. And, you know, we got to go to the new Sphere venue. Have you seen this? I've seen tons of pictures of it. It looks really fascinating. What was it like to be there? Yeah, it's kind of come to fame uh, because of U2. They played the first few concerts there. One of the smallest venues I think they've played in a very, very long time. I saw them in college once at our small little basketball court. And at the time, it was the smallest venue they had played in decades. This is probably the same thing. It's everything you want a modern, futuristic venue to be. 
like you walk in the the main atrium and there's robots greeting you. You turn to a different corner and there's like a stage where you create your own avatar. Wow. And the the experience of being inside is like an IMAX theater. Is it is it significantly better than that? You almost get an experience just by going through the kind of main foyer. I mean, that that's sort of a, a fun event by itself. But then there's whatever you're watching. It is it's it's basically like a IMAX theater at stadium level. You've got total surround sound, surround video. Uh, the show we were watching was a nature documentary by Darren Aronofsky called Postcard to Earth. Kind of a post-apocalyptic sci-fi story about how humans didn't really solve problems and we had to jettison away from Earth and only a few people with special passports could come back. So not the best message, I guess, for somebody who's you know worried about our future to be watching, but it does make it a little bit easier when it's in this gorgeous theater and you've got some... They called it a multi-sensory experience where you've got not only the the sound and video, but the seats actually shake during certain parts of the show. Sounds really cool. I mean, I'd watch Seinfeld reruns in this thing. So <laughs> highly recommended. I kind of doubt they're going to be running those. Yeah. Okay. So let me tell you about the first headline. This was a story from The Atlantic by Catherine Wu who, by the way, put her in your Rolodex of favorite women's health writers. She is constantly turning out really interesting commentary on our field. If you remember from a past episode, we talked about the changing seasonality of human births. Uh, She was the author on that one. This story she's writing about is uh, a concept that might be familiar to anybody who's had a prenatal visit recently, because we now talk about the ability to do genetic testing prenatally by getting samples of mom's blood. And the reason we can test baby's DNA by getting mom's blood is that there's known to be these small amounts of circulating fetal DNA in mom's bloodstream. And so from that, we can get pretty accurate testing and spare mom the kind of scary and risky alternative procedures like amniocentesis, which involves a needle in the belly. So what's- Really interesting stuff. What's unique about this angle to the story is that not only are those fetal cells circulating in mom's bloodstream- they land places and they take root and they end up admittedly or, or acknowledged uh, in very, very small amounts, but they end up in mom's other tissue and organs. So lungs, heart, brain. And the premise is that this really could last an entire lifetime. And so anyone who's ever had any pregnancy really of, of any duration, you know, even if it, it didn't carry to term, will literally carry their children around with them their entire lives. And so it's almost like kind of a poetic version to our field where kids truly are in mom's hearts and minds forever. Yeah. And I think the uh, research into the significance of those cells is very much ongoing and still pretty early, but it seems to have some implications in terms of immune system function as well and how we recognize uh, foreign cells when they actually are part of our family. Yeah. As far as health implications, the amount of cellular activity from these kind of transplants is extremely small. As far as how active they are may not really be clinically relevant, but as a concept, this idea that there's intergenerational connections in both DNA and therefore health is an important one as we think about environmental factors that relates to maybe your current pregnancy, because the uterine environment that you have right now for your pregnancy doesn't just matter for the child about to be born. If it's a female in particular, her children are in your uterus right now. So there really is a, it's called epigenetics, but there's this field of medicine that 
is connecting these familial links in in really important ways. So this is kind of a segue into it, and we'll have to talk about epigenetics uh, more another time, I think. Speaking of births, let me tell you about the triplets that the California legislature had. I heard about this from the environmental stewardship director at Kaiser Permanente, Seema Wadwa. Three new laws that are requiring large U.S. companies that do business in California for the first time to file comprehensive yearly reports of their environmental impacts, their emissions, even from their own suppliers and transportation, and requiring third-party verification. And there are serious financial penalties for noncompliance. And given the size of California's economy, aside from helping to address climate change, these laws, I think, will really result in less air and water pollution in many parts of the country where these companies are based, which is better for everybody's health. It should have an impact on the number of kids with asthma in those areas, reduced rates of lung and heart disease, and as we'll be talking about later in the episode, help protect healthy births as well. So it's kind of treating these big companies as contributors to secondhand smoke in a way. That's an analogy we often make that the air pollution out there is kind of like secondhand smoke for any community. And if you're someone who's trying to protect yourself from those health problems, you wouldn't want someone else to be able to pollute the air you're breathing. So it sounds like California is taking a, a pretty strong step in that direction. Companies aren't going to any longer be able to make claims like being carbon neutral or emissions free without really being able to back them up. And it's going to put a lot of pressure on companies to I think, clean up their act. I'm very pleased to see these bills go into effect. And it, it impacts all the companies that do business in California that I think have sales of $500 million or more. We're going to have to be careful. I think the green docks are one season away from being in that category. <laughs> well, people who are in that tax bracket uh, probably can relate to Taylor Swift's song, uh, Champagne Problems. Are you a Swifty, Bruce? Have you ever seen her in concert or heard her songs? I'm a budding Swifty. The more I hear about her lately, the better I like her. How about you? Do you and Kendall rock out to Taylor? Oh, Kendall's been to a few of her concerts, and she actually kind of likes to make fun of me for how much I know about Taylor Swift, having never actually seen her in concert. For example, I know random facts like this song, Champagne Problems, allegedly is about a story that took place at my college, alma mater, Notre Dame. If you want to deep dive on a Reddit thread, go check out that story. I mean, it's somebody who does really deep dive into the lyrics, but we're not going to get into that part. And this story is, I guess, maybe about mental health for people who enjoy having champagne as a you know favorite drink and celebratory option and just like to hear the sound of that cork pop, because this is one of those things that, you know, while we talk about health on this podcast for really important reasons, I do kind of suspect that deep down what's going to change people's thoughts on kind of all of our climate crises that we're facing are going to be things like this, like little joys in life, you know, like how can you possibly tell me champagne's going away? Okay, now I'm listening. Now I might care about things you're mentioning about laws in California, or now I might care about when someone mentions heat being in extreme levels. If it means those beloved grapes are gone, yeah, that hits a little different. It's a recurring theme on this show. We talked very early on about increase in, in turbulence during flights and how just taking a flight for an hour here and there might become a lot less relaxing as turbulence increases. So there are so many things that are changing and the wine industry is being impacted significantly as well as the champagne grape variety. So we'll have to keep an eye on this story, but it certainly is something, as you say, that might get a lot of people's attention. Yeah. And I think that ties into our interview upcoming as well, because we like to talk a lot about these very big picture topics, you know, uh, worldwide air pollution and growing trends in extreme heat and extreme cold. And 
these might seem kind of remote to some people. We do like to point out there are some pretty direct health implications. Our own research explored how closely connected things like, say, exposure to high amounts of air pollution are related to your risk for preterm birth or a low birth weight baby. Uh, we like to point out things about how extreme heat, especially in the third trimester, is linked to increased odds of, of those same outcomes. And often, you know, while we want to talk about individual actions, and there are things individuals can do, we, we, will, we will lay those out, really these solutions have to look at a higher level. They're system solutions that are solved by policies, either at the local community, state, or federal level. And it's not just removing the negative. When we improve the health of our environment, we improve our own health drastically. We saw a lot of examples of this in the 1970s with the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, move to unleaded gas. And so it's so exciting that we have the opportunity to talk to somebody who is directly involved in this kind of systems levels approach and has a really strong track record on caring a lot about the health of communities. So stay tuned for our upcoming interview with Congressman Mike Levin. We are so pleased to be able to welcome Representative Mike Levin, who represents me and everybody in North County, San Diego and South Orange County. He's serving his third term in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's a member of the House Committees on Natural Resources and Veterans Affairs. And through these roles, more than two dozen of his bills have been signed into law by presidents of both parties. He is from Southern California, just like Nate and I are, and making quite a name for himself in the halls of Congress. Thank you so much for joining us, Representative Mike Levin. Thank you, Bruce and Nate. It's an honor to be with you guys. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We have a lot of questions we want to get to, but I do want to ask about some local Southern California things. We saw that last year you were at the Ohana Music Fest in Dana Point. I was there watching one of my favorite bands from New Orleans, uh, The Revivalists. Uh, looks like you were there as a panelist about local activism. What's it like to attend a, a rock concert as a politician? I am pleased to go to Ohana, hopefully just as a music fan, uh, not as a politician. And just to listen to uh, Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam and all the other great acts that are there this past year, we had Foo Fighters and, and a number of others. And Ohana really is one of the, the best uh, music festivals in, in Southern California every year. And I'm very fortunate that it's right down the street from my house. And as part of Ohana, they do something called Storytellers, where they bring together uh, different folks with a background in environmental protection and sustainability. And we talk about uh, what's been happening that particular year with regard to, uh, for me, the, the policies that we're trying to enact here in, in Washington, D.C., but others for their local environmental uh, stewardship and activism. And uh, Ohana is just a wonderful, uh, wonderful weekend. It's just so incredibly positive and just great music. And uh, Eddie Vedder is really terrific. He's dedicated so much of himself to environmental stewardship over the years as uh, really a, a great spokesperson for, uh, for sustainable practices. So I'm just honored to be a, a very, very small part of it. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you've gotten to do that. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about you being on the Natural Resources Committee. What have you learned being on this committee and how does that help achieve the results that we need in terms of stopping some very serious environmental threats? Well, before I got to Congress, I was involved in the clean energy industry for a number of years. I had been an attorney focusing on renewable energy project development, 
uh, helping to grow the clean tech industry. I started a nonprofit along with one of the other attorneys at my firm at the time to uh, try to accelerate the clean tech industry in uh, Orange County, California. I sat on the board of something called the Center for Sustainable Energy, which did a lot of the work up and down the state on renewable energy and energy efficiency and electric vehicles and, and things like that. And uh, I wound up going in-house to two different clean tech companies uh, over uh, seven or eight years, trying to help grow those businesses. And uh, through it all, I, I knew that uh, if I was so fortunate to get to serve in Congress, I wanted to bring those experiences with me. And I was so delighted to be part of the Natural Resources Committee and the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. I was one of the three uh, freshman members that Speaker Pelosi put on that select committee, along with my friend Sean Caston and my, my good friend Jonah Goose. And the three of us all came from clean energy backgrounds in our respective states. And, you know, what we were able to do both on natural resources and on the select committee is, is really put forward the most comprehensive clean energy policies that Congress had ever uh, really thought through. And we put together an action plan in the middle of 2020, of course, right in the middle of the pandemic. The release of that was delayed a bit, but uh, that action plan wound up uh, serving as uh, a, an incredibly important foundation for the work that would come the following year as we put together what's known as the, what was known as the Build Back Better legislation. And uh, from that came the Inflation Reduction Act and came roughly $370 billion worth of uh, investments into renewable energy, solar and wind and all the rest. And none of it would have been possible without a whole lot of work from a whole lot of people across the board among the House Democrats. Uh, and, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, I'm really proud of the result. And now we have to make sure it's implemented properly. Now, what, what are these committees like in terms of bipartisan representation? And are there any Republicans that you particularly enjoy working with? Well, I wish I could tell you that we agree on everything, but I wouldn't expect anybody to agree with me on everything. My wife doesn't agree with me on everything. However, that being said, I think there are members of uh, the Republican Party who are very thoughtful and reasonable when it comes to climate. You don't often hear about them because they're sometimes you know, overwhelmed by those who refuse to accept science and who would just promote whatever the fossil fuel industry uh, happens to, to tell them. But immediately, someone that comes to mind is John Curtis from Utah. You know, John's a, a very good friend and uh, somebody who uh, understands and accepts the overwhelming science on climate and is focused on working with us to solve challenges. Uh, now, we're not going to agree on everything all the time, but again, I wouldn't expect that. Uh, what I would expect and what I do hope happens over time is that more and more members of the Republican Party are just willing to stop and read and understand the scientific consensus around climate rather than continue to just turn their head and accept the fossil fuel industry's talking points, which leads to bad policy outcomes. It leads to them doubling down on the dirty energy policies of the past rather than embracing the clean energy future that we want to see. Related to that, I am not saying that you know, we need to quit fossil fuels cold turkey tomorrow because I don't think that's realistic. But I do think we have to transition. And I am encouraged that uh, even at this COP, the, you know, the most recent climate conference, there's been an acknowledgement of that, even by some in the fossil fuel industry. 
Well, they've admitted to this before, but it doesn't seem that they follow through. And that's uh, it really leads to questions regarding, I mean, I'm really pleased to hear that there are some members on the right who actually will acknowledge the science of climate. But do you think Congress overall understands the importance of keeping fossil fuels in the ground? Well, I keep trying, Bruce, to explain the overwhelming scientific consensus on this and the need for us to dramatically reduce emissions as quickly as we can for the health and well-being of everyone around the world. Not to mention, I, I try to explain that I'm convinced in 20 or 30 years, we're going to be using a whole host of new technologies to generate electricity and uh, move goods and people around, build buildings, grow food. Uh, and all of it will require great innovation and a lot of manufacturing capacity. And I want all that to occur in the United States, because if we don't do it in the United States, we're still going to be using all of those technologies in 20 or 30 years time, but we'll be using technologies that were innovated and manufactured and assembled in other places. And that would be a huge missed opportunity for us. I, I really see it as the latest industrial revolution. And the opportunity is for us to lead and I'd like to think that a lot of my friends in the red states and in the red districts would understand that those, uh, those winds are coming their way also. We had the uh, Inflation Reduction Act recently. Uh, there was a, uh, an analysis that about 170,000 jobs had been created. There was about $150 billion, with a B, dollars worth of announcements. And more announcements came in the red states than the blue states. And one of my Republican colleagues, when I brought that up over dinner a while ago, said, how'd you do that? And I said, we didn't do that. We were agnostic where those investments went. We wanted the market to determine where those investments went. But it behooves members of Congress on the other side of the aisle to understand the benefits that these jobs can bring to their districts for many, many decades to come. So I, I want to go nuclear for a minute because- <laughs> Go nuclear talk about nuclear. You know, we can go we can go any direction that you think is, is appropriate. Uh, all right, all because right. we, we talk a lot about right. fossil fuel and the benefits of, of coming off of that. For example, one prominent case study uh, was the closure of the coal power plant at Hunter's Point in San Francisco. And in the 10-year period right. following that, preterm birth rate dropped 25%, which for people who take care of pregnancy, that is unheard of. Like nothing can reduce that risk by that amount. When it comes to nuclear, what are we looking at there? Because there seems to be a little more gray area in terms of advocating for continuing with what exists, but retiring what, you know, not, not building new ones at least. Where should people know about the pros and cons? Well, I uh, would make two big points here, Nate. One is that uh, we should not be building any new nuclear anywhere until we figured out the problems around spent nuclear fuel, what to do about the, uh, the waste that is uh, generated from fission-based nuclear power. And we've got you know well north of 100,000 tons of waste from commercial sites across the United States. I, along with my Republican friend and colleague Chuck Fleischman from Tennessee, started and co-lead a spent nuclear fuel solutions caucus. Uh, in fact, we just met. And I think the, the key there is we haven't had any policy around spent nuclear fuel in the United States, really, since the closure of Yucca Mountain in Nevada over a decade ago. All the standards are outdated. We just haven't seen much. And when I took the position in 2019, it was a top priority of mine to immediately tackle this. And I'm very proud to tell you we've done more in the last three years than had been done in the prior decade by a lot. 
You know, the problem we have at San Onofre in Southern California and in some other sites is we've got seismic risk, population density, and national security challenges. And in fact, towards that end, we're working on legislation that would prioritize the movement of waste from those types of places uh, once we figure out where to send it all. So that's you know big, broad point number one. Number two is the role that the nuclear power plant plays in the current U.S. zero emission, zero, zero carbon emission, because obviously there, there are spent fuel concerns, but zero carbon emission mix makes up about 40 to 45% the current nuclear fleet. And it works in certain parts of the country better than others. You know, I don't think in California, we have uh, really a whole lot of desire to see more nuclear power. There's a big debate, obviously, over Diablo Canyon. But in other parts of the country, particularly, you know, the South and, and some other parts of the US, they're more open to it. The same is true for around the world, you know, it being part of the, the mix. We just had the, the COP, the UN Climate Conference, where uh, there was a, a commitment on the part of the international community to triple the amount of nuclear power between now and 2050. And that ought to be a flashing red alarm that we have to get this nuclear waste problem sorted as quickly as we can, not just the United States, but all around the world. And I'm very confident that we're going to get there. I've set a goal, a personal goal. I, I turned 45 recently that I'm going to figure this out and we're going to move that fuel off the coast of San Onofre by the time I qualify for Medicare, hopefully before. <laughs> This is a fair amount of good news coming around in this interview, which I, I think uh, is really good to hear. I'm actually very happy just to see people in Congress like you smiling and looking like you've got energy to keep tackling these issues. Well, the problem, Bruce, is that the media only covers like George Santos and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> is there anybody else in Congress other than George Santos? Jeez. That's Taylor Green. <laughs> exactly. Well, regarding climate change. Do you see the health message influencing Congress at all and in terms of reinforcing some kind of action at the federal level? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I'm so delighted to speak with you both, because I think your ability as physicians to evaluate and understand and communicate the risks to public health is critically important. The, uh, when I think about the lungs of my constituents, it doesn't matter if they're Republicans, Democrats. I grew up in Southern California in the 80s in an area where we had constant smog alerts. And I'm sure your, your listeners, if they grew up where I did, they remember. And I remember, you know, being a kid and running around our track one or two times around the track and your lungs would burn from all the knocks and socks, PM, whatever else was in the air. And we've made great progress. California has really led the way in the last couple decades on this. And I give great credit to, to folks like my friend, Mary Nichols at California Air Resources Board and the folks at all the local air districts. We have 35 local air districts up and down the state. And they put in place uh, some of the most successful pollution reduction measures anywhere in the world. And as a result, you know, my kids' lungs don't burn when they run around their track quite as bad at, at their school. And uh, I hope that their kids, it'll be even less the case. So I do think public health professionals, I think to the American Lung Association every year and the work that they do and the American Heart Association, everybody else, but just keep it up because it's critically important that we hear from you. And it's, it's important we hear from doctors in the red states and the blue states just the same. And you actually are a sponsor, a co-sponsor of the Black Maternal Health Mondabus Act, which we've been involved with. In particular, one of the, the pieces of legislation is the Protecting Moms and Babies Against Climate Change Act. What prompted your interest in that suite of legislation in particular? 
Well, one thing, Bruce, is that my friend Lauren Underwood is a force of nature. And Lauren has been a tremendous uh, advocate and leader on the Momnibus. She was a nurse, of course, before coming to the Congress and brought that expertise. But it's very simple. African-American women, three times more likely to have uh, pregnancy-related causes that lead to their death than Caucasian uh, women are. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where I think Lauren and the Momnibus have, have just been uh, crucial to combat that maternal mortality in, in underserved communities, communities of color. And, you know, I think just more broadly, it's critically important that we fight for, uh, for women's right to access the health care they need. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we don't always agree with the other side on trying to make that a reality. Yeah, nurses remain one of the most trusted messengers in public. And you combine that with the power of Congress and you have some real optimism for those causes to create change. Well, I'd like to say that members of Congress are trusted messengers, but that gets back to uh, what we said about George Santos. <laughs> well, actually, that, that's what I want to ask you about. Uh, per- perfect segue, because I- I've seen you, you know, be very clear about not taking donations from large corporate PACs, but any corporate PACs, but big oil continues to fund many other candidates. How can voters best either exert influence on their representatives or sort out which representatives will really make climate a priority in the coming election? Well, I can tell you about past elections, you know, follow the money. And so much of it is public now on Open Secrets where, you know, your, your listeners can go check it out. But for example, if you look at the main vehicle for Republican, uh, House Republican campaigns, it's uh, actually called the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is a benign enough name. But then if you kind of go under the hood and you can do this, any of us can do this, go online and uh, open secrets will, will show you that some of the biggest donors to the Congressional Leadership Fund are the American Petroleum Institute, Coke Industries, Chevron, Exxon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in the last race, they spent millions of dollars trying to go after me and trying to go after my colleagues in tough seats who uh, spoke up and spoke out against them and are trying in, in good faith to get beyond this fossil fuel dominated conversation. We all want energy independence. I want to be very clear about this, guys. We want energy independence. It's just, I want to see energy independence that is clean and sustainable. So I want to see domestic solar and wind and storage and all the rest. I want to see a transition away uh, from fossil fuels. And we can do it. We can do it. But we've got to believe that uh, at the end of the day, it's a worthwhile endeavor. And so long as there's this toxic narrative that uh, literally is being funded by toxic polluters, we're going to have a hard time. Do you feel uh, at all optimistic going into 2024 that some momentum is being gained to, to counter that false and really toxic narrative? Well, I would just encourage your listeners, follow the money. You know, I think that one of the things that's really uh, important is uh, recognize whether your representative takes corporate PAC money. And uh, you can very easily do the work. Doesn't take that long. Again, Open Secrets is a great source. But there are 435 members of Congress, and I think about 60 of us don't take corporate PAC money, which tells you that the rest right. do. I was asked the other day by one of the uh, DC reporters, what's the most unpopular position that you've taken since you've been a member of Congress? And I said, well, in terms of here, in terms of the DC world, it's been not taking their money. But I'm very proud of that because I know that everybody has an equal shot of influencing me one way or the other, regardless if they've 
you know, been a supporter or not. And that's how it should be. So I wanted to ask a slightly different question because we deal with women's health as well. And you have been a supporter of the Women's Health Protection Act. So big picture, you know, what, what is at stake in the 2024 elections and what should moms and families know as they're deciding about, about making their vote that will impact women's health? Well, I'm incredibly concerned by the Supreme Court's action in Dobbs, which undermined five plus decades of precedent. We have to codify Roe versus Wade. And that's what the Women's Health Protection Act would do. It is very clear to me that if given the opportunity, Republicans would enact a nationwide abortion ban. They've said it time and time and time again. And as Maya Angelou once noted, you know, when someone tells you who they are, believe them the first time. And we know who Mike Johnson is. We know what Mike Johnson would do if uh, he had the opportunity to be Speaker of the House with a Republican administration. Uh, and a Republican Senate, and it would be a disaster for women's rights and reproductive rights, not to mention the environment and gun violence prevention and LGBTQ rights, and the list goes on and on and on. So what we need is ultimately uh, to overcome the filibuster in the Senate to pass uh, the Women's Health Protection Act, or we need for the senators to agree, which they've been very reluctant to do, to carve out this particular matter from the filibuster. And just a reminder to your listeners, there's no constitutional reason that the filibuster has to stay in place. Uh, that's purely the decision of the Republican and Democratic senators to, to keep it in place. So it's daunting. I can't believe that I have to worry about my nine-year-old daughter having fewer rights than her mom. I honestly can't believe it. And I'm proud to live in a state like California that actually values uh, reproductive uh, health, reproductive justice. But, but, I'm also very frustrated because I think that sometimes Californians take for granted uh, that uh, reproductive rights will be protected when, in fact, if there were a nationwide ban, there really is no assurance. Then we're in a legal gray area. And obviously, we've had our constitutional amendment in California. But it's not something I want to find out from the Supreme Court. I'll just leave it at that. Well, we want to let you get back to work and your votes that you have to make. But thank you so much for giving us some of your time. And as someone, uh, a constituent, I really have to thank you for walking the walk. The things that I heard from you on the campaign trail when you ran for your first term, you have exceeded my expectations. So thank you so much for what you're doing, for your commitment, for your enthusiasm and your positivity. And thanks for being here with the Green Docs today. We really appreciate it. Well, you are incredibly kind to say all of that, Bruce. May you always feel that way. <laughs> May I never do anything to mess that up. So thank you. And, and Nate, it's great to connect with you as well. Yeah. Thanks so much, Congressman. Thanks, guys. That was Congressman Mike Levin from California's 49th District, giving us a very functional view of Congress working as protecting communities' health by being guardians of the environment. Really interesting to see that work ongoing. I also liked his message, which you've probably heard many times before, follow the money, but this time with some, some specific follow-up. He gave us a website, Open Secrets, which I'll admit sounded a little scandalous first time I heard it, but uh, we've got it on good authority. This is a very legitimate website where you can check to see who is actually funding your potential representative's campaign and therefore who they're most accountable to. We also have some fun facts like Eddie Vedder is a science guy. I had no idea, didn't need more reasons to like Pearl Jam, but 
thought it was pretty cool that he, for example, joined a NASA Earth Day broadcast a few years ago talking about their Artemis II project. Artemis II was just in the news, actually. It is due to return humans to moon exploration in September of 2025, including the first steps ever taken by a woman on the lunar surface. In the broadcast, Eddie was talking to the astronauts who mostly were explaining this kind of phenomenon that happens when you see the Earth from such a high-level view, which is without borders, without you know colors drawn on the countries, you really start to appreciate this as a whole and something that needs protection. So Eddie Vedder put that in the B-roll of his new song, Invincible, which I listened to it a few times. It seems to largely be about uh, kind of this exploration and the discoveries we make when we explore. Also kind of fun, we got a Foo Fighters reference. And they were recently on SNL with with kind of a fun interplay between lead singer David Grohl and maybe the man with the voice most famous for imitation, Christopher Walken. Had you seen this, Bruce? No, I haven't seen it, no. Basically, Christopher Walken came to uh, David Grohl asking how to pronounce their name, and he had some fun with him. I'm very curious, but let's get to some fast facts. Fast fact number one, for the very first time, an electric vehicle outsold every other car in the world. It's the Tesla Model Y. And one of the great things about electric vehicles, as we've talked about, is they don't have tailpipe emissions. As the numbers of these grow around the world, we should see a reduction in the risk of diseases tied to this type of air pollution, which include childhood asthma, heart and lung disease, heart attacks, lung cancer, and as our research showed, bad birth outcomes. And one of those bad birth outcomes being preterm birth. Fast fact number two, preterm birth rates can drop by 25% in a community following the closure of coal power plants like we saw at Hunter's Point in San Francisco. And to remind ourselves, preterm birth, also called premature or preemies, is any birth before 37 weeks. And while in today's modern medicine, many people will either know a friend or know a friend's child who was born premature and did just fine, which is all great news and advancement, preterm birth is still very much something to be avoided. It's connected to things like cerebral palsy, learning disabilities, and respiratory disease like asthma. Okay, so... Don't keep me hanging. What was the correct pronunciation told to Christopher Walken of this band that we love? Ladies and gentlemen, Foo Fighters. (laughs) Mitochondria. Okay. (laughs) I need a mocktail. Let's get to our guest mixologist from Mike Levin's district. Welcome back. So it's time for a mocktail, and we're so delighted to be joined by the bar director at the Mayfield in San Juan Capistrano, California. Welcome to the Green Docs, Matt Yeager. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys. You must get this all the time, but with the name Yeager as your last name, was this just destined that you would work as a bar director? (laughs) Yeah, I guess that kind of uh, landed in my lap. Weirdly enough, uh, cheers was my first word too. So I've had both cliches going. How did that happen? How did Cheers get, because I know what my first word was, and it's an obvious story, but how did Cheers come up for being your first word? I was gathered at a family dinner, I believe, and everyone went around saying Cheers, and I just joined in. <laughs> whole table went silent, looked over, and was like, this might be a problem. But um, <laughs> How old were you when you said that? I think nine months. Yeah. So you've, you've been a prodigy from the beginning of a mixology Oh, yeah. No, I've been committed since yeah. birth. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, Matt. Well, we want to talk mocktails. Uh, the Mayfield has a really strong reputation for having some amazing cocktails. And as we're learning more about this mocktail space, it seems like a lot of the same ideas and ingredients go into a mocktail as well, with some 
also kind of, I think, unique touches to make it taste still interesting, minus the alcohol part. We've got two drinks here that you can talk to us about. Can you go over the first one, this new leaf? We've got some audience members in January, maybe turning over a new leaf. This might appeal to them on a few levels. So for the base of it, we use uh, seed lip, which is definitely like the most popular non-alcoholic distillate that there is at the moment. Um, and then we'll take the seed lip garden in particular and put kefir lime leaves in it. Let that soak for about two days. Um, usually about a handful of lime leaves just to about a bottle of seed lip. Where it's a very like green earthy sort of thing. So we, uh, we add a uh, cucumber in as well. And then uh, making the cucumber, we'll throw like a handful of cucumbers into a blender with some water, leave the skins on so it gets a bit of spice, and then uh, filter those out. So we'll do a quarter ounce of that as well, and then a quarter ounce of lime juice, and a uh, or three quarters ounces on both of those, and then a, a quarter ounce of uh, rich simple syrup, and then top it with uh, some ginger beer. So it's a very like green, earthy. Cool. Can you tell us about the Bright Eyes drink? Yeah, of course. Um, so we use uh, Liquid Alchemist. We use one of their purees, which is like a raspberry puree. They're great if you want to have like shelf-stable sort of syrups and purees that still taste fresh. I think they've got strawberry, tamarind, a bunch of different elements. And then um, with that one, it's quite simple. We just do like raspberry, a little bit of uh, simple syrup and some lemon, and then top it with soda water. So it's kind of like a rich, darker lemonade, a great one to make at home as well. No kind of overnight preparation for this one. Yeah, we'll still usually shake it. So if you have shaking tins at home for any reason, it's still better to have uh, whatever that air enter into the lemon and it'll start to open it up a bit. But um, still could stir it if you're down to it at home. Great, Matt. Well, I, I'm really looking forward to trying these mocktails in a minute here. Do you guys have any you know, kind of focus on the mocktails this month? We've got another drink on the menu that's very similar to a Paloma and uh, going to try and do like a mocktail version of that. Might do like a... Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever had a milk punch, but I think we're going to try and do like a milk punch sort of mocktail as well and just kind of keep like elevating and elevating what we're doing with it. Okay. And and who do you see ordering mocktails coming into the bar? Is there are, is it always women? Do you see more guys? What's the mix? Honestly, at Mayfield, our demographic is a lot of female. But honestly, when it comes to mocktails, I've seen all different types of people, especially with non-alcoholic in general. You say everything of like, non-alcoholic beers and wines and champagnes and i think it's definitely become more of a norm whereas in the past it was usually like if someone was in recovery or pregnant whereas now you don't really need an excuse to have to go the healthy route which is cool it's cool to see like health becoming a trend and how it impacts socializing as a whole thanks matt we really look forward to trying these on the show and and stopping by in person at some point to raise a glass with you and hear you say your first word again for us <laughs> <laughs> sounds good see you guys soon So we found a mixologist whose last name is Jaeger and first words as a kid was cheers. And now we're going to top that. I know. Obviously, he's been doing this for way longer than us. Are you ready to have your mocktail? Yeah, let's go. Uh, so our mocktails are ready. Again, I have the new leaf. And Bruce, you have the bright eyed and bushy tail. Although I don't know how they missed the chance to call this the raspberry beret. Let's talk to him <laughs> about that later. It's a Prince reference there. All right, here we go. Cheers. Mine all mixed up. I'm ready. All right. Foo Fighters. What do you think? So this is excellent. Yeah. A few notes for people who might want to try to make this at home, because this was a more complex recipe that involved soaking mint leaves for days and days, and love that cocktail places like uh, Mayfield do that. 
I did not have the time for that. So I just mixed a bunch of ingredients, including the seed lip and other things with the flavors. There was like an Owens cucumber mint, non-alcoholic mixer. I, I think it turned out really well. And I did put, it felt kind of like a Moscow mule. So I put it in a copper cup. I think that worked out pretty well also. And just to mention for people who are looking to have a reason to try this recipe, the ginger in this in particular is a natural anti-nausea. So anybody uh, maybe in early pregnancy or otherwise experiencing nausea and wants to avoid medications, ginger is a great, great way to go. How about yours, Bruce? Similarly, the bright-eyed bushy-tailed has this sprig of mint in it, and mint we know is really good if you have heartburn or indigestion or any other sort of stomach complaints. It will help to soothe that, so it's a nice side benefit. We're off to a good start for the new year. Absolutely. A new episode of Green Docs will be out every other Thursday, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your listening content, or stop by our website, greendocspodcast.com where you can check out the show notes and links for this episode. We've got a lot of things for you to learn there. And send us your comments and submit questions. We love getting those. This episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Picard and Nate DiNicola and produced by Podcast 411. A special thanks to Congressman Mike Levin. Go check out the website, greendocspodcast.com. Like, subscribe, tell your friends, share some mocktail recipes, and come back Thursday for a new episode of Green Docs. Green Docs.